Well, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We'll be in verses 14 through 23 this morning. Jesus has been filling in the details concerning what it looks like to be a disciple, to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were challenged to love sacrificially as Jesus talked about, you know, loving your neighbor. And the way to love your neighbor is actually to be a neighbor and to live self-sacrificial lives of love for the good of those who are around us. We saw that with Mary and Martha that we should concern ourselves with the teachings of Christ. We should concern ourselves with the Word of God and not just with busyness. Ministry is not busyness as much as it is diving into the Word of God so that we might be equipped to share the Word of God with one another and so grow up into the image of Christ. And then we saw that we should be, uh, that, that God's people should be a people of prayer, that we can approach God with, with a confidence, with a boldness, knowing that our dependence is completely and utterly on Christ and that God the Father delights in the prayers of His children and He stands ready to answer the prayers of His children. And that brings us to, to our text where the narrative begins to, to shift a little bit. It turns towards opposition to Christ. And it's in the middle of this opposition that Jesus calls His audience, He calls all of us, even this morning, to make a choice, a commitment for or against Him. You are either with Christ or against Him. So if we're going to understand how this, how this flows together, how we might take those passages we just studied about being a faithful follower of Christ and how it, it interacts now with this opposition, we might be asking the question, why should I follow Christ? Why should I make this commitment in light of the opposition that He receives? Why should I love my neighbor? Why should I sit at the feet of Christ and love and delight in His Word? And why should I be a person who acknowledges my dependence and throws myself at the mercy of God and goes to the Lord in prayer? Well, I think our text this morning gives us a couple answers for why we should be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. First, we should side with Christ or be committed to Christ because He is the King. He is the King of kings who has Come. That's in verses 14 through 20. And then secondly, we'll see in verses 21 through 23 that we side with Christ because He is the strong one who has overrun Satan. So let's look at that first uh, point there in verses 14 through 21. We see Jesus in verse 14. Now He was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. You know, early in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus began His his healing ministry, the ministry of His miraculous work, the emphasis we, we saw fell primarily on the miracle itself. But in our passage this morning, Luke spends one verse describing what happened, and the rest of the passage has to do with the people's response. You know, early on we might have gotten a one or two word response. The people marveled. The people were astonished. Well, here we get, we get the, the scene sort of filled in for us. The response of the people and the instruction of Jesus concerning what His miracle here is proving. 
So we find in verse 14 that Jesus is exercising the authority that we've seen him exercise in the past by casting out a demon. That is a wicked angel. And this man was was controlled by this wicked angel. We've said before that these demons, these wicked angels, are, are angels that have rebelled against the Lord. They hate the Lord. They've arrayed themselves against him. And instead, they serve the prince of demons, Satan. And these wicked angels can have a powerful, even controlling influence over people, as is demonstrated in our passage this morning. This particular man has been rendered mute. And Jesus, as he has done time and time again in the book of Luke, with the authority with which he speaks, he delivers the man from the controlling power and influence of this wicked angel. And there's, there's concrete evidence that this man has been delivered. And the concrete evidence is that the mute man speaks. And the text says that the people marvel at this. And they fall in love with Jesus and they serve Him the rest of their days, right? Not really. You know, it's interesting that even though they are amazed at this, they don't all respond positively. In fact, the majority of them don't. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is teaching in Nazareth, his, his hometown, and he's teaching with such authority. The, the, the Bible says that the, the people were astonished. They were amazed at the authority of his teaching. Yet they immediately turned and they questioned him. They said, isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't he from Nazareth? And what did they do? They tried to throw him off a cliff after being astonished at the authority of his teaching. And here they're amazed at at his ability to to cast out a demon with with his own power. And yet many reject them. You know, it isn't for a lack of information that these people are rejecting Christ. And it's not for lack of information that people today reject Christ. I was listening to a podcast recently about, you know, the war in Vietnam. And they said one of the One of the problems early on is the United States didn't have a ton of intelligence about the Vietnamese people and how they think, particularly the the, the rebels there. And so they hired a man named Leon Gouray. I'm I'm guessing how to say that. And he's going to go over and he's going to actually interview these captured soldiers and try to get some intelligence on how they think and what, what their thoughts are on this war and will they persist. And he compiled over the course of a few years 61,000 pages of intelligence. And you'd think, okay, now America would know how to respond to this war because before they're saying, we ought to pull out, and the other side is saying, no, we must press on. So he goes and gets 61,000 pages of data. And guess what? As people read the data, you know what they, you know what they did? They just confirmed what they already believed. The people who thought they should pull out read the data and say, see what the data says? And the people who thought that America should press on, they read the exact same data and said, no, we ought to continue on. And so we see that oftentimes we're just confirming what we already think. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than the way people think about Christ. They don't even deny the miracle here. They couldn't. A mute man is now speaking 
they couldn't deny the miracle. Instead, they interpret what they're reading and they confirm what they already want to believe about Jesus. They interpret what they see through the lens of their darkened hearts. And we see that in the beginning of verse 15. But some, the people marveled, but some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. You see, the first rejection of Jesus is saying that he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, if that name is confusing to you, all you have to do is keep reading the text. You know, sometimes in your Bible, when you're reading and you have questions, you can actually just keep reading. You know, we don't have to be like the guy who watches the movie and there's a character that pops up for the first time and they say, who's that? And you say, just keep watching the movie. They're going to answer. So sometimes we can do that with the Bible. Who is this Beelzebub? Well, we can keep reading in verse 18. It lets us know that this is talking about Satan and we can go into the history of the name and all that, but we don't really need to to understand this narrative. It's talking about Satan. And so what an accusation we have here that Jesus casts out demons, he works his miracles by the power of Satan. In the face of all the evidence, they look at the miracle and they try to explain it away by any possible means, even attributing it to the power of Satan. They actually blaspheme the name of Christ in the worst possible way, calling him a servant of Satan. They call the Lord of light a slave of darkness, and they attribute wickedness to the perfect Son of God. You know, maybe maybe some in the crowd were thinking about Deuteronomy 13, where Moses actually commanded the people to, to test a prophet who performs these miracles. But if he's trying to take you away to a false god, then you must purge this prophet, which literally means put, put him to death, purge the prophet from among you. And so some of them may be thinking, this is a false prophet. He's working these these miracles in a satanic manner. But Jesus hasn't come to lead people to a false God. He's come as God in the flesh to reconcile sinners to a holy and a righteous God. Others in the crowd are not as quick to attribute this work to Satan, but instead they're wanting a sign. I don't know about you, But as I read verse 16, I thought, what sign? What do they want? The people have already seen Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons. He's controlled the weather. He teaches with an authority that is above and beyond any sort of authority that they've ever heard. He he fed 5,000 people. And you know, the book of John gives us a little more detail there. After feeding the 5,000, they come to him and say, Jesus, would you give us a sign? He casts out demons. He raises the dead. And they say, you know what, just, just show us something, Lord, that would prove that you are who you say you are. You know, I'm screaming as I'm reading verse 16, and I went to read my commentaries, it was more dignified. One of them said, it is unclear what exact sign they were seeking. That's why I don't write commentaries. Again, it's not for lack of evidence. It's not for lack of evidence. 
You know, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you might be thinking, you know, if I had enough proof, if I had enough evidence, then maybe I would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm here, the other elders are here, the members of this church, we would love to answer whatever questions you might have. But, but I, I ask you this morning to consider the possibility that it's not a lack of evidence. Oftentimes, there, there's a, there's a, clinging, a, a holding to, in fact, all the time, of behaviors or freedoms or pleasures or lifestyles that we're clinging to, th- th- that Christ would demand that we turn away from those things. And so we justify in our own thinking that he cannot be who he says he is. He cannot be claiming uh, to be who he says he is. And so therefore, I will reject him. Those things keep us from embracing Christ. And we'll see this morning from the work of Christ, from the words of Christ, that there's nothing, nothing worth hanging on to. There's nothing worth hanging on to that should keep you from coming to Christ. The people demand a sign as if that's what they truly desire. And ironically, Jesus gives them a a bit of another sign. Jesus demonstrates his own deity by knowing their thoughts and responding to them. You know, we've joked a a couple times already in the book of Luke that when Jesus reads someone's mind, it doesn't go well for them. It's a a controversy that's going to follow. And so Jesus, knowing their rejection of him, and worse than that, knowing their attribution of his miracle-working power to Satan himself, he responds with essentially three arguments. That word if sort of, sort of helps us identify these. It shows up in the beginning of verse 18, the beginning of verse 19, and the beginning of verse 20. And those are sort of markers letting us know how this passage is laid out. There's these three arguments that, that start with the word if. Look there in, in verse 18. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. The first argument that Jesus gives that if he is that if if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then he is injuring the realm of his own authority. He is injuring himself. For you say I cast out demons by his power, but if that's true, he's only destroying his own kingdom. And this is based on the logic that Jesus gave there at the end of verse 17, actually. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. This is a lesson that these Israelites hearing this would know well. Is their kingdom divided after the rule of Solomon and face defeat after defeat? A kingdom that's divided falls. A house divided falls. And so the logic is, since, since Satan will not willingly undermine himself, it would be impossible that Jesus is undermining the authority and the power and the control of Satan by the power of Satan. Jesus is entrapping his doubters here. They would affirm that Satan is a powerful enemy. They had just seen the power of the control that one of these wicked angels can have, and they saw the instantaneous change that occurred when he was freed. Jesus is saying, you you can't hold that Satan is this powerful enemy, while at the same time saying that the kingdom is divided and it's weak because Satan is attacking himself. You can't hold those two truths together. 
because a divided house falls. A kingdom that's divided cannot stand. As a side note, it's not the main point of this text, but I I like what J.C. Rowell said. Jesus' point is Satan wouldn't do this. He's smarter than that. And so J.C. Rowell says, when Christians keep up needless divisions, they show themselves more foolish than Satan himself. When we keep up needless divisions, we are, we are doing something that Satan himself won't even engage in. Because Satan is too far too proud to harm himself on purpose. His lust for power is too overwhelming to undermine it. And also we see that his hatred for God and God's creation is too great to be the one that's responsible for now making it better by healing a man who once could not speak, but now he can speak. You know, we've seen throughout the book of Luke that whether it be disease or sickness or sin or or some sort of physical inability that Satan is out to destroy. He hates God. And one of the ways that he rages against God is to seek to destroy those who are made in the image of God. Just consider all the harm that Satan is causing now against image bearers as young people often encouraged by their parents are harming their own bodies so that they might seek to align their body to match their feelings of a particular gender. Or consider the harm of the violence being done against the unborn in the womb, the attack on the image bearer, or consider the racist motivated shootings in Buffalo and in Orange County that are hitting the news just this week, even one in Dallas. Satan is a destroyer. He is a murderer. He rages against God, and he delights in destroying image bearers. He delights in harm done against them. So Jesus' logic is this. When when the destroying influence of Satan is reversed, it could not have been Satan. When the destroying influence of Satan is reversed, it could not have been Satan. Otherwise, he would be working against himself. It's a logical argument that Jesus makes. Verse 19 gives us another argument. If Jesus casts out demons by Satan's power then others who do a similar type of work must be guilty of the same charge. Look there in verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will actually be your judges. The sons there in verse 19 are either Jewish exorcists or it's a reference to the disciples of Christ who are sons of Israel in the sense that they are fellow Jews, fellow Israelites. And I think probably that second option is better, given that Jesus has given the disciples the authority to exercise this sort of ministry. And so Jesus is essentially asking, is everyone who engages in this sort of ministry operating under the same authority? Of course not. So why would you accuse me of operating under the authority and the power of Beelzebul? If you are maligning me, you are maligning everyone who engages in this sort of ministry. But the twelve, the disciples whom Christ has empowered for this sort of ministry, they will sit as judges over you. So, 
Jesus says, undermine their case. But it cannot be that he's operating under the power of Satan. And we're left with the question, then, then by whose power does he operate? Well, Jesus answers there in verse 20. We can see, see the logic with which Jesus is developing his argument. In verse 18, he started out with, if, if Satan... In verse 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, so if this is true and it's not, and if this is true and it's not, but if by the finger of God. The only option left is that he's operating with divine authority. After undermining the false accusations, Jesus addresses what his miracle truly signifies, that the kingdom of God is before them. The the kingdom of God is in their midst. Instead of being evidence of satanic power and authority, Jesus' miraculous work is a definitive sign that he is exercising divine authority. It is by the finger of God that he is overthrowing the kingdom of darkness. You know, in the... In the book of Exodus, you know, there's these, these plagues, and for the first couple plagues, the pharaohs, magicians, or diviners are able to sort of replicate these plagues, but they, they, they go to a point where they're no longer able to do that with their secret arts, the text says. And you know what they say? They have to admit, this is the finger of God. The, the finger of God has done this because we cannot replicate this with our magic. It's the work of his fingers. His power is so inexhaustible and so creating and intervening in creation and overthrowing the kingdom of darkness is finger play to the Lord. When Jesus speaks, demons flee at the sound of his voice. It's his finger work. And if that's true, then then the kingdom of God is in their midst. The king stands before them. The incarnation of Christ and his miraculous work is the beginning of the end of Satan and his rule and his authority and his power. We saw back in chapter 10 that as Jesus empowered the 72 to go out and they came back saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, while you were out, I was seeing Satan fall from the heavens like like lightning. As they exercised authority, it was a demonstration and a picture that Satan's power and rule and authority is coming to an end. He's being, being cast down. He's being defeated like a lightning bolt thrust to the ground, to the dust. The idea is that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ, and it's, it's a demonstration of the power of this King Christ. To think about the language of verse 17. A kingdom divided cannot stand. A house divided falls. Jesus' logic was Satan would do this to himself. But he's not saying the house won't fall. He's not saying Satan's kingdom will not fall to the ground. It will in the coming work of Jesus Christ. The arrival in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sad reality of of this opposition that Jesus is facing here is that the very thing that they had anticipated, the very thing that they had been longing for and hoping for was was in their midst and they missed it. Isaiah 35, 6 says, In Christ's kingdom, the, the mute man will speak. They had all the evidence they needed right in front of their face, which should have been 
clear to them, what should have been plain to them is, is, is um, they're not able to see it as a result of the veil that's over their eyes. And they become guilty of the severest form of blasphemy in attributing the work of Jesus to Satan himself. Though many in the crowd claim to be religious elites and to know the Word of God, they reveal the depravity of their own hearts and show that they are indeed spiritually dead. In accusing Jesus, they show themselves that they are actually the ones operating under the powerful control and influence of Satan, not the Son of God. They have rejected the kingdom by failing to side with Christ. The king has come and they missed it. But for those who willingly bow the knee, for those who willingly bow the knee to Christ, he makes you his citizen, a subject of the king of kings. And what a privilege it is to serve this king. There may be difficulty in following Christ, but there is no dishonor in following Christ. You must come to him. As the King of all creation, we must come to Christ and love Him with all our heart because God the Father has decreed that the Son is the King. So we side with Him because He is the King of kings. Secondly, we side with Him because He has overrun Satan. Look in verses 21 through 23. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus once again engages in in illustration and imagery to help make his point. Satan is like a strong man who is fully armed and he's guarding his own palace. And in this image, Satan is the foe, he is the opponent, he is the enemy, and he is indeed strong. Even now, we deceive ourselves if we think that Satan is a weak opponent. We have only to read the Scriptures and see that he was able to deceive Adam and Eve, who didn't have the the powerful pull of the flesh the way that we do, yet they were deceived in the garden. Satan continues to blind and deceive and to, to hide the glory of the gospel. He holds the unregenerate in captivity. He is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, according to Ephesians chapter 2. He's the the lowercase g, God of this world. And he is a roaring lion who roams around seeking whom he may devour. He is strong. He is a strong opponent. In this image, his goods are safe until, until one who is stronger comes. You know, reminiscent of Dan's sermon a few weeks ago, that little conjunction, but it floods the passage with hope for those who are bound by Satan's devices, and it reminds us, those of us who were once held captive, who were dead in our trespasses and sins, by the grace and mercy of God have been made alive, it reminds us of the means by which we were freed, that it took a stronger one than us to ransack Satan's kingdom. But when a stronger man shows up, he overruns the palace. He wins the victory, and he divides the spoil. We need to remember, as we read this illustration, we need to remember the context here. 
Jesus has just freed a man through this miraculous healing by expelling a wicked angel from his controlling influence. And so this is what Jesus is is illustrating. But we would say that this this act, this miracle, is a demonstration of the power of Jesus and, and the overthrow of Satan. It's a microcosm of the work that Jesus has come to do that he ultimately does in his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. This points to a much greater victory that Jesus wins by his selfless sacrifice. Isaiah 53 12 has similar languages, likely that Jesus is alluding to this. He says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. How did Jesus get to this position where he gets to divide the spoil? Because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. The moment The decisive moment of Satan's defeat, the ransacking of his house, is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. To the victor then goes the spoil. Jesus has plucked us, those of us who are in Christ, from the the hands that held us captive, from the controlling and powerful influence of Satan, and he showers us with with the spoils of victory, all the blessings that come to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. We just saw last week that he gives the Spirit to his people, the adoption as sons and daughters, the hope of eternal life, all the benefits that have been given to us in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the strong one, the stronger one, has overthrown Satan. And he has done it through his death and resurrection. Hebrews 2 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How did he free the captive? How does he divide the spoil? It's through his death that he breaks the power of death and the power of Satan. Satan is powerless to keep the Lord Jesus Christ from rescuing souls from the kingdom of darkness since Jesus has come to destroy the works of the wicked one. We might say that Satan still roams about seeking whom he may devour. We might say that his, his complete and final overthrow comes in some kind of stages. We saw as Jesus and his 72 are sent out that, they are, that Satan is being cast down like lightning from heaven. We see that at the cross through the death of Christ, he has disarmed Satan and paraded his demons through the, through the streets in utter shame because they've been defeated. But we wait for the final day where Satan is cast into everlasting punishment to no longer have an ounce of influence over God's people. No assault on us. We await that day. He is defeated. The victory is won, but in his death throes, he's still seeking to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And the reason I bring that up is so we're not sort of lulled to sleep into thinking that there's no work to be done for God's people in resisting the devil. 
it's clear in Scripture that we still must do that. That He still does seek to destroy our faith through things like persecution. The spoils have been given. The blessings of salvation have been poured out, but there's a, there's a sense in which we must daily live in light of the finished work of Christ. We put on, the way Paul says, the full armor of God so that we might resist the fiery arrows of the devil. We do this by reminding ourselves of, of the work of Christ. Those things, the, the, the armor of God, the belt of truth, the, the, the helmet of righteousness, those aren't things that we do or that we get. It's, it's, those are things that have been accomplished for us and they've been given to us in our union with Christ. So we remember who we are in Christ Jesus and we remember that we belong to the stronger one who has overthrown the, the power of Satan. Thomas Watson an English Puritan wrote this. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but he said, Oh, how long was it ere Christ could prevail with you to come under his banner? How much opposition did he meet with ere you would wear this prince's colors? At last, omnipotent grace overcame you. When Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, an angel came and beat off his chains. So when thou wast sleeping in the devil's arms, Christ by his Spirit smote thy heart and caused thy chains of sin to fall off and made thee a subject of his kingdom. Oh, admire free grace. Thou who art subjects of Christ and are sure to reign with him forever. We remind ourselves of the work of Christ, the omnipotent and free grace of God that called us to himself and open our eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Jesus has raided the house, and he has set us free. We are liberated from from Satan's controlling power and influence. But he still rages against God's people. We are now free to resist and to walk in ways that please and honor God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus ends this text with a stern warning that there is no gray area. That this, this is a, a war, and you must choose sides. There are no Switzerlands in God's kingdom. You must choose to be with Christ, or else you stand against Christ. You must choose to be with Christ, or else you stand against Christ. The warning is this, to not consciously join with Christ. Christ is to be against him. Now back in chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus warned the disciples to stop attacking someone who was on the same team. They wanted to stop a man from casting out demons because they, they weren't running in the same circles. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Well, here Jesus is saying, if you aren't on Christ's team, so to speak, then you are against Him. If you are not for Him, you are against Him. To think back to to the illusion of Deuteronomy 13, where maybe some of the, the, the Israelite audience was thinking, is this a false prophet? If so, the law commands us to actually kill him. To think back to Deuteronomy 13, we would say this, either Jesus needed to be purged from their midst, or he is the king of kings. There is no middle path. Decide against Jesus, 
here is to say that his work is satanic, and to side with him is to receive all the spoils with which he has accomplished, with which he has won when he ransacked the house of Satan. So we would say this morning, do not refuse this king. If Jesus is indeed the great king, submit yourself to him. Gladly and willingly bow the knee and acknowledge him for who he is. Do not be like Israel, who at the end of nearing the end of Jesus' life, they would cry out, We have no king but Caesar. Instead, fall before him. Jesus came unto his own, John says, and his own received, received him not. The people of Israel, the ones who are supposed to be waiting for this king, by and large, reject him. Jesus will say later on, even in Luke, that he's come like, like a hen to gather his brood, but they refused. This morning for us, either we gather with Christ, or we remain apart from him, scattered. And One day, the Bible says that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do this willingly and freely and cheerfully because we've recognized Christ for who He is. We've come to know Him through the proclamation of the gospel. That Jesus Christ is indeed the stronger man who overthrows the works of the devil. Others must bow. They do it with hatred and animosity in their heart, and they will be separated from God forever in a place called hell. Luke could say that the kingdom was in their midst because they were face to face with the king. And the miracles that Jesus performs, especially this miracle of casting out the demon, teaches us that Jesus has come to defeat Satan and has done so even as we await Satan's final judgment. We also see that everyone must make a choice concerning Christ. We all owe ourselves to Him. Which would be a terrifying thought if He wasn't such a good King. To owe yourself complete and utter allegiance would be absolutely terrifying if He wasn't such a good King. You know, I know I've used this illustration before. You'll have to bear with me. But in... The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, the four children stumble into Narnia. They're learning about this fantasy world called Narnia. They find themselves at the home of, of two beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they begin to talk about Aslan, who is this Christ-like figure, and, and, and they let it slip that Aslan is actually a lion. And when the children realize that Aslan is a lion, they wonder, should, should I be... Should I be afraid of him? And they ask the question, is this Aslan safe? Mr. Beaver gives the best response. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's a good king. And in Narnia, Aslan reigns as a sovereign lord and the gracious king. He is not a domesticated house cat nor a violent lion. He is a good king, and only he can vanquish the wicked witch who has exercises great authority over Narnia. You know, I love the imagery of Christ as the good and righteous king that C.S. Lewis captures because it's true. The logic underpinning so much of Jesus' argument is that Satan destroys life 
but I have come to redeem it. If it's truly good, if something is truly good, it hasn't come from Him. It's come from Christ. So for those of us who claim Christ this morning to be under the rule of Christ, part of this means reminding reminding ourselves that we must refuse the lie that real life is found in fulfilling my own lusts. Refuse the temptation to believe the world's lie that real life, real joy, real happiness is found in living for my desires and fulfilling my own passions. We must be willing to be renewed in our thinking daily, asking God to teach us again and again that our hearts are deceitful. We still wrestle with the flesh. Sometimes the things that I want are truly harmful. And if Christ, the good king, forbids it, then it's for my good. It is truly good. True life is not found in living life on my terms according to my feelings. And if anyone gets in the way of me fulfilling my passions and and pursuing my feelings, then they are against my happiness. That's not where life is found. Life is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. It is found in humbling ourselves and bowing the knee to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we recognize our own hubris in thinking that we can resist the devil apart from You. But You have given us everything we need in Christ. In our union with your Son, we have everything at our disposal that we might walk in a way that pleases and glorifies you. Lord, forgive us for the times that we think that sin will be satisfying, that it will bring true joy. Lord, may we afresh and anew bow the knee and humble ourselves before you and the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would open eyes as the gospel has gone forth, regenerate hearts, draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.